Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. So many of you watching are believers, and I hope that this furthers your belief and trust in the scriptures that we read. I hope uh, even if it challenges some things that maybe you've always believed or thought about, I hope that um, this will give you new things to think about and will help you see what's really in the text and uh, what the Bible really says and and maybe what it doesn't say. And if, if you're a skeptic watching this, maybe you're not a believer and you just kind of want to learn more about Genesis, I hope this will, at the very least, be a, a really great story for you, help you understand the storytelling of the Old Testament. But I hope it will make you curious to look into what Genesis has to say about life, about uh, not just the things that you may know about Genesis, creation and history and these kinds of things, but, but really what does it have to say about human beings, about human nature? What does it have to say about... Um, civilization? What does it have to say about how people act towards one another, whether people are basically good or whether people are basically evil? Uh, Genesis has a lot to say about all of these things, and I hope that it would increase your curiosity. I, I believe the things that Genesis has to say about those things because I believe that it was inspired by God. And whoever the author was that put together Genesis, we don't know who it was. We attribute it to Moses, but in reality, we, we don't know who it was. But whoever it was that ultimately redacted all these things, all these stories into a single writing of Genesis, uh, I believe was gifted by God to do that. And what we have here is something God is trying to tell us about ourselves and about him and our relationship with each other. So right in the first sentence, Genesis 1-1, God is hovering above all of the uh, darkness and evil and chaos, and God's word creates light from nothing, separates the light from darkness, sends the darkness scattering, creates order from chaos, and creates abundance in the ordered space. And so just an abundance of light and a scattering of darkness. And this is all done by God's word. So it is not lightning bolts. It's not his might. It's not his armies. It's not his weapons. What is it that causes all of these things to happen? It's God's word. It's it's his speaking, his word. And that's very important to the storytelling of Genesis when you see the emphasis that is placed on God's word. Um, we've just seen with 
Abraham, the story of Abraham, how important God's word to Abraham was just over and over and over again, and then ends up being validated, even though Abraham seems to doubt it a few times. So Genesis 1 through 11 is sort of like the prologue to the whole Bible. It starts with the creation of the cosmos and drills down to one man, Abram, and showing us that the Lord can have a relationship with each one of us and can speak to each one of us. And we've talked about the idea of holiness, that the word holy has not really appeared in Genesis, but the concept is in every story. The concept of holiness is to separate out something for a special purpose, a higher purpose. And that's that light being separated from darkness. And we see something like that happening in every story. We've talked about the family of God, and we've looked at both the good and bad sides of that, right? So we've seen Adam and Noah and Abram, and we've also seen those who have rebelled within the family and rebelled against God, uh, Cain and Ham and Lot. And so now we're uh, going to continue uh, looking at the family of God as we get into the stories of Jacob and Esau tonight. Uh, we've seen that the overriding principle here, just to sort of sum up that God's word separating light from darkness, the overriding principle is remove yourself from the wicked world and be a blessing to me and to all people. This is God speaking that to us through the story. So removing ourselves from the wicked world, being a blessing to God and a blessing to people. It's reiterated in the greatest commands. Uh, Jesus reiterates it in the New Testament. Love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, James talks about pure and undefiled religion is um, helping widows and orphans and, and keeping oneself unstained by the world. In Genesis 14, we're introduced to Melchizedek, which uh, we tied into the book of Hebrews, showing how Melchizedek is, is an archetype that gives us an idea of what Jesus might be like, this priest king. And we took that opportunity to say, hey, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Everything that we're learning about is about Jesus. We'll see that even more in future chapters. Uh, and then as Abram had his name changed to Abraham and his actions, his faith or lack thereof, his obedience or lack thereof goes out into the world around him, we see how his faith, his trusting in God uh, affects everyone around him, whether it's Pharaoh or Abimelech or his uh, wife or his maidservant or his children. And so we realize our faith persuades other people and that's a double-edged sword. So I do want to make one comment here about this word faith. And faith just means trust. Uh, faith has come to mean some kind of sort of fuzzy feeling or some kind of spiritual thing. And it's really just, it's such a utilitarian word. It really is. And in, in scripture, the word faith is always just much more utilitarian than we give it credit for. It just, it just means trust. That's all that it means. So right now I'm sitting in a wooden chair. It's kind of hard for you to see, but I'm sitting in this in this wooden chair. Now, when I went to sit sit down in this chair, I did not pick up the chair and examine it. I did not press on the legs and examine all of the joints. And all that. I didn't do that. I just sat down in it. Why? Well, because I was just sitting in it like five minutes ago before I got up to, to get this glass of water. And the chair was fine then. I've been sitting in this chair for every lesson that I've done here. This is part 11. So for 10 lessons now, now into the 11th, I've been sitting in this chair. Uh, I was sitting in this chair for days before I decided these lessons might be a good thing to do, that some people might enjoy hearing some of these thoughts. So I have faith in this chair, right? That's not a spiritual thing. It's not even a religious thing. It's just trust. It's I trust the chair. I've sat in it a bunch of times. 
And if I got up now and went to the restroom and came back, I'd sit right down this chair. I wouldn't give it another thought. Why? Because I just, I implicitly trust this chair. Now, if I was telling you that I trust this chair, and meanwhile, I'm squatting, hovering above this chair, saying, oh, I trust this chair. I trust this chair. You would know by my actions, I don't trust this chair, right? This is why James says, a faith without works is dead. This doesn't make any sense. You, you show me your faith without your works, however you're going to do that. I'll show you my faith by what I do, is what James says. So I show you I have faith in this chair because I'm sitting in it. That's how you know I trust it, okay? If uh, you're going to par uh, paratroop, if you're going to jump out of a plane, and you say, hey, I trust this parachute. And I say, great, jump out of the plane. You say, no, thank you. <laughs> well, you know, it sounds like you don't actually trust the parachute, right? So when we have the word faith, all it means is trust. And it doesn't mean a, a blind trust, although it can. You can just recognize who someone is and just trust them right out of the gate. You can do that. And in fact, Jesus honors that. The people who do that in the New Testament, the people that come to him, recognize who he is and immediately say, I know that you can do this, or um, uh, I, I know who you are. I believe in who you are. He, he commends that greatly, but he doesn't turn away Thomas when Thomas doubts, right? He has little faith. And so Jesus says, come, come, touch the hole, touch these ears. Know, know that it's me. And much of our faith is actually predicated on, on the past. In fact, God all throughout the Old Testament says, I am the God who, and he talks about things from the past to remind them, hey, I brought you out of Egypt. I'm going to take care of you now. So it is trusting in something we can't see. Faith is trusting in something we can't see, the future. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but we can be confident about it because of the things that have happened in the past because of the way we've seen God act in the past, because of the stories that we've heard about God from the past, like these stories of Genesis. It's a very important thing to remember about faith. When we talk about faith, it's not a, a mystical, warm, fuzzy, religious feeling. It just is a very utilitarian word. It just means trust. That's all it means. Now, take that and apply that to God. Do you trust God? Do you trust the Word of God? Do you trust Scripture? When the Word it becomes much more simple and utilitarian, Honestly, I think it makes it a lot harder for us to say, I trust God, because we look at our actions and we see by many of our actions that eh, maybe we don't actually trust him if this is the way we're behaving. I say that about myself more than I say it about anyone watching. So when we went from Abram to Abraham in the last few lessons, we see how our faith, our trust in God persuades other people. And last night we looked at the story of Rebecca and learned that the Bible is not all about us. It's for us. It's not about us, but uh, thank God it is for us that there is something that we can learn from every story. We ask, what does the story say about God? We ask, what does the story tell us about human nature? And then probably most importantly, we ask, how are we going to obey this? How are we going to honor God by obeying the truth of this scripture? That's the way we should study any text. What's it say about God? What's it say about people? And how am I going to obey it this week immediately? And we saw great examples of that in Abraham, and then in Rebekah, who when asked if she would go uh, and meet Isaac to marry him, she immediately said with one word, I will go. So tonight we're going to look at Genesis chapters 25 through 28. We're going to read very little of it. Uh, again, I don't like to read huge sections of this text because it is uh, copyrighted. Uh, this is Robert Alter's translation and commentary uh, from the five books of Moses, more obviously in Genesis. It's a great translation, lots of great commentary notes. Um, the, he's not a, a Christian, 
I'm not even sure that he's a devout believing Jew. He is Jewish by, by heritage, but he knows the scripture and he understands the storytelling style. So there are things that we can learn from him, but you just have to take, if you get, if you get the commentary for yourself, you just have to take those notes with a grain of salt and understand where he's coming from academically and um, versus spiritually. Okay. So let's get into the material for tonight. Genesis uh, 25 through 28 is what we're going to look at, but I want to show you a sentence real quick. And I'm, it's, it's the first half of a quote, an actual quote from an actual teenager. This is an actual quote from an actual teenager. And it's the first half of the quote. I want you to guess what the second half of the quote is. Okay. So this is the first half of an actual quote by an actual teenager. What is the second half of the quote? So here's the quote. I was the happiest teenager in the world because I was the happiest teenager in the world because and you guess the rest of that sentence. We'll come back to that. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 25. I need to get my Bible all queued up here. So we've basically com completed the story of Abraham. As I mentioned last night, Abraham is not mentioned at the end of 24. And so even though we will read here at the beginning of 25 about Abraham and some other things that he did, what we kind of understand from chapter 24 is that Abraham sends the servant off to find a wife for Isaac. And by the time the servant returns, it seems that Abraham has, has died. So what we're about to read now is some more information about Abraham, but that's, we should not necessarily think that this is in exact chronological order. By the way, exact chronological order and very scientific detail and all those kinds of things, that's a very modern Western way of thinking. Eastern people, I didn't care about that. It was just was not an interest of theirs. So it would mean nothing to them that Abraham died in the middle of the last story and now he's here again doing things. They would very easily understand this. These were things that happened while he was alive. It's not a big deal. So let's not make it a big deal. So Genesis chapter 25, Abraham has another wife and he has uh, more sons through her. And I just want to read verse uh, five or six here. And Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac and to the sons of Abraham's concubines. Abraham gave gifts while he was still alive and sent them away from Isaac, his son, eastward to the land of the east. So again, what this verse is making very clear for us is that Isaac is the chosen one over and over again. Scripture has been very clear about that. None of the other sons of Abraham, you know, they're, they're, they'll be fathers of great nations and whatever, but, but Isaac is the one. Isaac is the chosen one. It's through Isaac that the blessing will come. And it's once again, doubled down on here. When Abraham gives everything to Isaac, he gives some gifts to his other sons, but then he sends them away. Isaac is uh, through uh, whom this story will continue. And then we have here the genealogy of Abraham. And it's very short because it's basically Abraham through Isaac, basically. This doesn't go very far. Uh, but remember what genealogies do. Remember, they're, they're genealogies, first of all. Sometimes there's some storytelling in there, and you see a little bit little bit of that in here when it's referring back to uh, Ephron, the, for, from whom they bought the the, the burial cave. But they also serve as act breaks. So really what this is telling you is the story of Abraham is done and we're now into the story of Isaac. And right away in the story of Isaac, Jacob and Esau are born in this very chapter. So there's really not even an Isaac 
section of Genesis. I mean, we have a little bit of Isaac at the end of the Abraham story, and we have a little bit of Isaac here at the beginning of the Jacob and Esau story. Uh, but there's very little that Isaac actually does on his own. There's really only kind of one story, and all he's doing is repeating the sins of his father. We'll see that. Uh, but really, the story goes almost right away into Jacob and Esau. So that's primarily what we're going to kind of look at tonight. So here we have the lineage of Ishmael after that in chapter 25, and then the lineage of Isaac. And so uh, notice it says, this is the lineage of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. It's a very short <laughs> lineage because it's father, father to son. But what, what that line is telling you is not this is a, a complete lineage. It's letting you know now a new story begins. That's what that's letting you know there around verse 18, 19 or so. Um, so Re uh, Rebecca is barren. Remember, Sarah was barren. And then she had children late in life. Well, here we find Rebecca is barren and uh, the Lord granted Isaac's plea. Isaac, again, is pleading on behalf of his wife. He's interceding for her. Remember, we talk about that idea of prophet interceding with prayer um, for someone else. So Isaac does that for his wife and uh, says the Lord granted his plea and Rebecca, his wife, conceived and the children clashed together within her. And she said, then why me? which uh, will be very indicative of her son Jacob's uh, behavior and dialogue. Jacob is very much a mama's boy in the story. And you see already Rebecca sort of acting like her uh, future impetuous son, her son who will be born soon. Then why me? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations in your womb, two peoples from your loins shall issue. People over people shall prevail, the elder, the younger's slave. So again, you see the repetition happening here. Uh, I've said before, in Hebrew poetry, you don't have rhyming at the end of a line, which is just sort of an acoustic aesthetic uh, kind of thing. What you have here is sort of a rhyming of ideas. You have something stated and you have it restated right after that. That's letting you know, here's something that's important. So these two nations, Jacob and Esau, are clashing within her, going on in verse 24. And when her time was come to give birth, look, there were twins in her womb. And the first one came out ruddy like a hairy mantle all over, and they called his name Esau. Then his brother came out, his hand grasping Esau's heel, and they called his name Jacob, Yakub, meaning leg puller, heel grabber is what it literally means. And Isaac was 60 years old, when they were born. So he was 40 when he married Rebecca, and now 20 years before he has children. Remember, we've talked about how, how quickly we can go from reading the marriage to the birth of children. For Isaac, that was 20 years passage of time. Think about everything that's happened in the world in the last 20 years, happened in your life in the last 20 years. Sometimes we have to wait for God's promises uh, or for God's answer to prayer. So Esau is born, Jacob comes out holding onto his heel, and lads grew up, and Esau was a man skilled in hunting, a man of the field. And Jacob was a simple man, a dweller in tents. And Isaac loved Esau for the game that he brought him, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob prepared a stew, and Esau came from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me gulp down some of this red, red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore is his name called Edom. Edom sounds like Ha'adam, which is the word for red. And so when he comes in, he says, give me this Ha'adam, Ha'adam. Give me this red, red, is what he literally says in the Hebrew. So that's why he's called red. And Jacob said, sell your birthright to me now. 
And Esau said, look, I'm at the point of death, so why do I need a birthright? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and he rose, and he went off, and Esau spurned the birthright. With all that and, 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 you see just this quick succession of events. And what the storytelling is telling you is that all this happened very quickly. It was done very rashly, and that's... It, it's there's not some deal here that Esau made he can't get out of. What's really happening is Esau doesn't care about it. He spurned the birthright. He despised it. He didn't care about it. Let's go on quickly through the next couple of chapters here. In chapter 26, there's a famine. Isaac goes down to the where the uh, Philistines are, runs into Abimelech. It's uh, likely, very likely not the same Abimelech from uh, Isaac's story, although I suppose it could be. But remember, Abimelech is just the name. It's like Pharaoh or Caesar. It's the name of the ruler of the Philistines. So he goes to whoever is the Abimelech at this time. And the same thing happens. He takes his wife and he says, oh, uh, let's say she's my sister. And you see the son repeating the sins of the father and uh, with a very similar outcome. And you see the Philistines and Isaac's people arguing. And there's the creation of a well. And... Um, uh, that well in Beersheba is still there. And I think that's one that I, we went to, but we got there uh, about 20 minutes after they closed. It was very weird. There's a little city there in Beersheba and it's sort of in a building, kind of like a museum. And it's like across the street from like a Walgreens type place. It's very strange. It's, oh, here's this, you know, uh, 3,500 3, year old well right across the street from a drugstore. Um, but it's still there. Again, these are real people. These things happened in real places. And um, then we see that uh, Esau, when he's 40, he takes a wife from the Hittites. I remember the Hittites were the ones that really um, uh, turned the screw on um, Abraham when he was trying to buy a burial place for his dead wife. So we already have sort of a, an opinion about the Hittites and Esau is marrying them. Way to go, Esau. Okay. Moving on into chapter 27. We see that Isaac is getting old. He sends Esau out to get some game. Rebecca hears about it. She goes to Jacob and they devise this plan. If you're a believer, you're well aware of the story. You've heard it in Vacation Bible School. We're not going to read it here or rehash it. One thing that I will say about it when you do read through it again very soon, which I hope that you do, we've talked before about ancient dialogue, how ancient dialogue is always between two people. Well, in this story, you have Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. And occasionally it appears like there's maybe some middlemen, uh, some servants or something like that, that are also relaying some information. Well, ancient dialogue is literally that dialogue, meaning two. So it's a conversation between only two people. So you can't have a conversation between four people in this ancient literature. So um, there's nothing necessarily theological about it, but I want you to see what masterful storytelling is happening here in chapter 27, that there's all these people talking to each other, right? Isaac's talking to Esau, and Rebecca's talking to Jacob from things that she's overheard, and then Jacob's talking to Isaac, and then Esau's talking to Isaac, and then Esau's talking to Jacob, and everything is done in pairs. And it's a very master masterful way of using these dialogues but still having all four of these characters all interacting with each other. So as you read through it the next time, notice how that is done. It's just extremely well done and is just an exquisite piece of literature. And we should not ignore that. Uh, God made it beautiful and we should appreciate the beauty. 
So you know the story. Once again, Esau um, does not receive the blessing. Isaac gives the blessing to uh, the son that he touches, believing it's Esau, but actually it's Isaac. By the time Esau returns, um, he gives him uh, as this this blessing was his name called Jacob that he should trip me now twice by the heels my birthright he took and look now he's taking my blessing this is Esau speaking and uh, Isaac gives him a blessing saying look from the fat of the earth be your dwelling and from the dew of the heavens above by your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve and when you rebel you shall break off his yoke from your neck not a great blessing and so here's the part that I really want to read is Esau's reaction to it And Esau seethed with resentment against Jacob over the blessing his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, as soon as the time for mourning my father comes around, I will kill my brother Jacob. Hearkening all the way back to Cain and Abel, the first brothers and the first murder. And here we once again have brothers, um, one of them ready to murder the other. So... um, what we see here with Esau is Esau has responded not like an heir, not like someone who is worthy of receiving what his father is going to give him. We see it from the first story with Esau, and we see it here in his reaction to this story. Rather, we see someone who is a child. He's his father's child, but he's not acting like an heir. He's not being responsible with what his father has to give him. His father has such a large, we see that in this in the intervening story, has such a large um, group of livestock and servants and that sort of thing that he's in, in conflict with the Philistines so much that they have to make agreements and treaties. I mean, uh, the the Jewish people, the, the family of Abraham, God's family is, is, is getting pretty large at this point. It's a big industry for this time in history. And Esau spurns it all, doesn't care about any of it, goes off and hunts, isn't involved with the family business, isn't tent dwelling, isn't taking care of what's going on at home. He despises it all. And rather than looking his own selfishness in the face, his response is to kill his brother. He's not being an heir. He's being a child. Jacob wants to be an heir. He's the second. So he's not, he doesn't have the right to the heir, but he goes out and he fights for it and he gets it. And we'll see how he, he acts in the chapters to come. So uh, in chapter 28, we see more childish behavior from Esau. Isaac summons Jacob and tells him, you will not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And so what happens a few verses later, Esau hears about it. So what does he do? He goes and marries a Canaanite woman. I'll I'll show dad, right? And so Jacob and Esau uh, here are are done uh, being brothers. They are clashing as they did in the womb. They're now clashing on earth. And um, I think we'll save the story of Bethel for another time. So that gets us mostly through 28. So I want to come back again to this idea, um, this idea of uh, being a child versus being an heir. And I want us to sort of think about this point here, and I'm going to point out some other things. Some of us settle for being solaced with soup rather than daily feast as an heir of the father. So Esau, Edom, give me that red red. He comes in as a child, speaking as a child, speaking with the language of a child and making demands, giving up things that are very important for what he can have right now. And when I say some of us settle for that, I'm including myself. I settle for it all the time. 
I would rather do some things right now rather than invest in what is going to have the best long-term outcome for God, for the kingdom, and for myself. Um, I would rather, I want an answer right now rather than reading my Bible for years and years so that I have the wisdom to navigate all the times when I have to make decisions. Some of us are children. We, we settle for what we can get right now and we demand things right now. And some of us are learning to act as heirs of a father of a vast fortune. So often in the book of Ephesians, which is a book that I like to study with the young men that I disciple, in Ephesians, it talks about being adopted into a family, and it talks about how God does things according to his wisdom, according to his fortune, according to his values, according to his economy, is the way I teach my uh, the, my friends that I disciple. That's how I teach them to think about it. God's economy. If God has all this vast wealth, wealth of wisdom, wealth of resources, um, I, I want you to think about God's economy, that he's not going to run out of these things. You know, we can look now at a man's economy. We can look and see what happens when something attacks man's economy, even in a really fantastic economy. When something like this virus comes around, it, it hurts. It hurts our pocketbooks. We wonder, we fear about the future. Right. And we want answers now. We want dates now. Listen to a lot of the reporters asking questions. When is this going to be available? When is this going to happen? When are things going to go back to normal? You, you see people uh, all over wanting to know the answers to these questions. And these are short term questions. These are ultimately childish questions. Not that it's we're all thinking these things. We all have these questions. I'm not judging anyone for having these questions. But to want an immediate answer is the response of a child, not the response of an heir, because an heir has a daily feast, feasts on the vast for fortunes of the father daily. And when trouble comes, is fat, happy, and wise, and ready to deal with adversity. So, um, so okay, so what does this mean? We're speaking sort of in metaphorical terms. Here's the number one principle that I want to make out of this particular point, and that's this. The feasts that you have from the father the number one thing all of us have access to is the Bible, is the word. Remember, it is God's word that creates the light. It is God's word that makes the light abundant. It is God's word that goes out and separates the light from the darkness. We all have access to that through the, through the word, through the word of God. Now, we may not, as we pray, we may have a hard time uh, as the the men of faith that we've been reading about, Abraham and Isaac wait for years for a child. Abraham waits 25 years in his old age for a child. He's 100 before he has his first child. Isaac is 60 before he has his first child, waits 20 years. Rebecca experiences 20 years of barrenness before she finally has a child. So there may be things that we ask God for, that we pray about, that we don't get immediate answers about. But in his word, there are things right there that we can obey today, that we can obey daily, that we can feast on that word daily. We can read it and obey. We can do that every day. We don't have to wait on specifics. And what I have started to come to learn is if I will read and obey every day, all the other decisions seem to kind of make themselves along the way because I've gained the wisdom. I've gained the experience. I find that I'm in the place God wants me to be when the time to make a decision arises. And it's a lot easier to make a decision when I've been feasting on the word every day. Imagine uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, where you have the, the apostles falling asleep while Jesus prays. Jesus prays fervently. 
Then Judas shows up. And from that point forward, the apostles all scatter because they're totally unprepared. And Jesus faces it, saying hardly a word to his accusers and faces it all, endures it all, all the way to the end. Because he prepared in the beginning. He prayed all along the way. And when adversity came, those who had not prayed were scattered. And those who were prepared in prayer were able to face it and to endure it and to fulfill it. So again, I got to ask, are we being solaced with soup? Are we being childish? Or are we feasting daily as an heir of the Father? So I presented you at the beginning with this question or this uh this quote is an actual quote from an actual teenager. And my challenge to you was to finish the sentence. I was the happiest teenager in the world because what's the rest of that quote? Well, I got to tell you where the quote comes from, and then you'll probably be able to guess the last half of it. If I don't tell you the context, you would never guess. So these are photographs from Eastern European Mission. This is a Christian organization uh, supported largely by Churches of Christ that has been sending Bibles and Bible literature into Eastern Europe since the communist era uh, began, since the 60s, since it was once illegal to do it. Once the Iron Curtain fell, they um, had a lot more access and they were able to start putting Bibles in public schools. Many of the school systems in Ukraine and in Russia uh, have not had new textbooks since the 80s. All of their textbooks still talk about communism and the great, the greatness of communism. And communism is, is long dead and gone, uh, all but dead and gone in these places. And so you have the children of Ukraine trying to learn just basic reading and writing and history and uh, speech giving, and uh, they're unable to do it because they don't have textbooks. EEM comes in with Bibles and Bible textbooks. Some of the school systems, because they have no other textbooks, are using the Bibles to teach English grammar and spelling. They're using the Bibles to teach history because they're talking about all the things like we're talking about in Genesis. They're talking about all the places and looking at maps. And um, even the atheist teachers are glad the Bibles are being used in schools, but because in a society where there is no morality taught, then the women, many of them grow up to become prostitutes, and the men, many of them grow up to become uh, uh, mafioso and, and, and thieves, because these are the only way they can make money in the impoverished system that uh, rose out of the ashes of communism. And so even the atheist teachers are glad for the Bible to come into their classroom because it teaches a morality to their students and shows them that they can choose to do good things. Remember, as we've learned in Genesis, every person is evil from their youth, but we are also made in the image of God. And so we are capable of great good. And so what you see here are photos from Eastern European Mission on delivery day when these children are receiving their first Bibles. And I don't mean the first of the year or the first of the class. For many of these children, this is the first time they have ever even seen a Bible, much less held one in their hands, much less one that they now own that belonged to them. And you can see how happy they are. Look at how happy this little boy is. Look at how happy these little girls are. Look at these young men with their supply of Bibles. Look how happy they are to have it. They're so delighted and they're so thankful for this gift. Look at these teenagers opening these boxes of Bibles and Bible materials and Bible stories, going through them, huge smiles on their face. They're so delighted to have received this gift. I ask about this quote. I was the happiest teenager in the world because 
The end of that quote is this, I was the happiest teenager in the world because I had a Bible and I could read it. That was the quote from the young woman from Eastern European Mission, a young woman who I believe is now part of the Eastern European Mission team and is helping them navigate the language barrier in Ukraine. Uh, I think last I looked, half of the states in Ukraine, 50% of the states in Ukraine have put Bibles in their public schools. They have nationwide uh, Bible contests that are very similar to our Lads to Leaders programs or Bible Bowl. They have nationwide public school contests about uh, Bible knowledge and Bible speeches. And some of the uh, Bible study required for even uh, ninth and 10th grade students at these contests is more Bible study than I do for a single lesson. It's really something spectacular. You can see how much they love the Bible. They trust it and they feast on it. Just a couple more stories. This photograph, what you're looking at here is a balloon. And that's the top of the photo there. And you see it tied. And then down at the bottom, you have some small, basically like real thin garbage bags. In the garbage bags are a bunch of other plastic things sort of made out of the same stuff that garbage bag is made out of. It's a little plastic sheet and it's probably about three foot by three foot. And what it has is the entire, uh, I think it's the, either the entire gospel of John or the entire new Testament in Korean. And it's being floated over no man's land into North Korea. Once it gets over into North Korea, there is a uh, small explosive that goes off and the bags open up and the wind carries them for miles and miles and miles. As you've seen, you know, plastic shopping bags floating down the street. You can imagine thousands of these sheets floating on the wind for miles and miles and miles. Christians in China near the North Korean border have been there to rescue refugees from North Korea who have miraculously escaped across the border. And they will find people who are starved, who are beaten, who are bloody, who are near death, having escaped North Korea, and they find them clutching in their hand these plastic sheets with the Bible on them, because it was the only thing that gave them hope. And when they are received by these Chinese Christians who take them into their homes and nurse them back to health and feed them and take care of them and teach them, teach them about the Bible that they've been clutching, some of these North Koreans, once they're nursed back to health, demand to be let go back across the border, back into North Korea, so that they can tell everyone back at home about Jesus. That's incredible to me. The love, the passion that they have for the scripture, for the Bible, for the truth. One more story from Ravi Zacharias. This is a picture of Ravi. Ravi tells the story about a young translator that he met uh, while he was in Vietnam. The young man was translating for him and uh, was a Christian or had become a Christian. And one day, many years after this had happened, he calls Ravi at home. He finds him and he tells him who he is. Ravi's astonished to hear from him, has not heard from him in a long time. And he tells him the story of what has happened to him since he last saw Ravi. And so the young translator, whose name I can't recall, the young translator, after Ravi left, short time after that, was arrested and imprisoned by the communist 
Vietnam government. And he was put in a very dark, very disgusting prison. And they were given work to do uh, every day and rotated through all of these positions. And uh, some were worse than others. And one day he received the most dreaded work of all in the prison, which is to clean the latrines. Now, this is not just going into like what we think of a public restroom and sort of wiping things down. This is going in to the latrines, scooping them out, cleaning them out. This is disgusting work. It's uh, maybe something necessary, but it's mostly punishment for the people who are prisoners. And as he had been in this prison, he had been in there for a long time. He found he, he found himself saying, I, I, I just don't know if, if, if God is real or not. How could God let this happen to me? I'm faithful to him. I'm a child of his and he's going to let me be in prison and treated in this way. Uh, I, I don't know if I can believe this anymore. He tried singing songs and he tried worshiping and he tried praying. And finally, one day he just said, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to think about scripture. I'm not going to think about God. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to sing a song. I'm doing nothing tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the first day that I do nothing. That morning he woke up and he was given latrine duty. So he goes to the latrine and he's cleaning it out and he sees a piece of paper, something that uh, a communist officer has used as toilet paper and he sees that there is English writing on it. And so he rushes over to the sink and he washes off the piece of paper and he realizes it's Romans chapter eight, chapter eight and verse 28, which says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And he just drops to his knees and he prays to the Lord and he says, not one day, not one day did you let me go without worshiping you. Not one day would you let me go. And he promised, I, 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 I will never let it go again. The next day comes around and he asks his guards if he can have latrine duty. <laughs> They are astonished. Why would you want latrine duty? You want latrine duty? Have at it. He goes in there. He goes to clean out the latrines. And sure enough, Romans chapter 9. He goes the next day. Sure enough, Romans chapter 10. There was a communist officer that had found a Bible as contraband and was using it as toilet paper, using a sheet or two every day. And every day, this young man was going in rinsing them off and drying them out and assembling his own Bible so that he would have an English Bible to read. And he would read it to his fellow prisoners and he would encourage them and he would try to understand God's word and obey it. One day, two guards came into his cell, roughed him up and they said, we understand that there is an escape being planned and that you are part of it. And the truth was there was an escape being planned and he was a part of it, but he knew that telling these men would mean probably certain death. And if not that, certainly worse imprisonment than he was already experiencing, which he could hardly bear as it was. And so he says to the two men, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I've got nothing to do with that. And they say, tell us, tell us. He says, no, I, I don't know. And so they leave. And as soon as they leave, he's crestfallen. Because here was really his first opportunity to practice obedience, just to tell the truth. And he failed. He, he lied. And he prayed a prayer to God, which he kind of assumed he wouldn't have to make good on. And that is, Lord, if you send them back in here, I will tell them the truth. Because he respected God's word. He respected God's truth. 
He held it in such high regard. Lord, you send them back in here. I'll tell them the truth. Well, sure enough, an hour or two later, here they come back and they push them against the wall. And they said, now we understand there's an escape being planned and that you're part of it. Now you tell us, are you part of this escape? And the young man said, yes, yes, I am. And what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me? Are you going to um, uh, throw me in solitary? And they said, uh, no, we want to go with you. And so they escaped that night with the help of these two guards and they escaped by raft and they got out on the open water and a storm arose that threatened to capsize the whole boat and drown everyone on it, few of whom knew how to swim. And if it weren't for the naval expertise of these two guards on that boat, it's likely all of them would have died because he told the truth, because he trusted God's word. They were all saved. A remarkable story, a, remar a remarkable story for sure. So we have to ask, are we children that want something now, or are we going to be heirs and really feast upon the word? Now, we've gone a little long tonight, but bear with me while I read to you from 2 Timothy. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're in chapter 3 and a little bit into chapter 4, because Paul speaks to, to these uh, very times that we find ourselves in, in a lot of ways. And notice the emphasis that he puts on the word, the teaching. Paul saying to his uh, disciple, Timothy, but know this, hard times will come in the last days for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, who are overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for the foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. But you, this is you singular, you, Timothy, but you, Timothy, have followed on what? My teaching. You, Timothy, have followed on my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and, and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. For you know those who, what? Who helped you, who saved you, who fed you, who freed you. You know those who taught you. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, this is the charge. Preach the word. 
Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience in teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to falsehoods. But as for you, you singular, Timothy, but as for you, my disciple, Paul says, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You see the emphasis that Paul places on the word. And so when we talk about discipleship, that can be summed up from earlier in this letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul says to Timothy, take the things that I have taught you, entrust them to other reliable people so that they may be able to teach others also. Generations of faithfulness. It's that family of God. And it's centered on the first acting thing in all of the Bible, in all of history, the Word of God. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.